The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And she sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection. She's also a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. And she's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, The O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, Montel, many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hi, Mari. Who's your guest tonight? Well, we have a guest who's a repeat guest, and we are so lucky to have him back. He is one of our most exciting guests. His name is Daniel J. Solov, and he is a professor and an, uh, the author of a new book called The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet. And, you know, we were recently away, and I spent the time on my vacation reading this book. It was yes, riveting. You did. I could not put it down because it was so insightful and so thought-provoking, and I was thrilled that uh, Professor Solov agreed to be on our show again. He did a great job last time. So let me give a little bit of background for those of you who didn't get to hear him last time. And by the way, you, you can listen to the archived interview from our last interview with Dan when we talked about his book, The Digital Person, and that's at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. So here's some information about Dan. Professor Solov is an associate professor of law at George Washington University Law School. He's the author of an incredibly interesting and provocative new book entitled The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet. He's also the author of The Digital Person, Technology and Privacy in the Information Age, which we talked about last time. He also has authored a casebook for law students called Information Privacy Law, and he's published dozens and dozens of articles and essays and law reviews. And he has a great blog that I was looking at, as a matter of fact, today called concurringopinions.com. He also has a new book coming out in uh, mid, I think, spring of May 2008 called Understanding Privacy. Professor Dan Solov writes and teaches in the areas of information privacy law, cyberspace law, law and literature, jurisprudence, legal pragmatism, and constitutional theory. He is an internationally known expert in privacy law, and he's been interviewed and quoted by the media in over 100 articles and broadcasts, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Toronto Star, Associated Press, ABC News, CBS News, NBC News, CNN, and much more. And he's been on 
National Public Radio, and of course he's been on KUCI as a really wonderful guest for us. He also serves on the advisory board of the Electronic Privacy Information Center, and you know, we've interviewed people from, from that wonderful organization. And he's president of the Law and Humanities Institute. You can find out more about him and his new book at futureofreputation.com. So we're thrilled that you could join us again all the way from the East Coast. Are you there, Dan? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, we are just thrilled to have you back. Thank you so much. I loved this book. I, I really think it's important for everyone to read this book because it really does affect everyone, and especially sitting here on the campus of the University of California. We have a lot of people who blog. We have people who go on MySpace. They belong to Friendsters, and I don't think they have a clue of the ramifications of what they're sharing and how it might affect them in their future life. But let's get started with some of the the really nitty-gritty things in the book. Um, You talk about, since the dawn of time, people have gossiped, and they've shamed each other. So how has Google and the Internet changed the dimensions of this type of crazy human behavior? Well, I think that for a long time, uh, gossip would be relatively local. Um, people in your social circle might gossip a bit about you or spread some rumors, and a few other people would know it, and you could move away or memories would fade, or when you left high school or college, it just became irrelevant and it would die away. Um, but what we're seeing today is that when people are gossiping and spreading rumors online, it's very different. Uh, instead of fading away, it's now preserved forever online. Um, you can't escape it in that uh, no matter where you go in the world, um, you can find this information by doing a Google search under your name. And so gossip, which used to be local and fleeting and, and temporary, is now becoming permanent, widespread, and uh, something that will go wherever you're going to go and will never, ever uh, go away. You gave a great example about the, the girl with the dog poop. Why don't you tell that story? And that, that's how you start out in your book, too. Exactly. That, that's the story I used to open the book. And it's actually the story that uh, when I first read about it a few years ago, it's the story that inspired, uh, inspired the book. Um, and basically what happened was it, it began in, in South Korea. A young woman was on a train with uh, a little dog, and uh, the dog had to go to the bathroom, uh, and the woman was in a hurry and didn't clean up after her dog when she left the train. Well, obviously this was relatively uh, fairly rude, and uh, one of the train passengers snapped her photo with a cell phone camera, put it up online, and then what happened is really amazing. Everyone starts jumping in and adding details about her life, criticizing her, attacking her online, um, information about you know, where she lives, her phone number, and so on is, is posted, um, and uh, she starts being harassed. Um, and ultimately actually uh, drops out of her school and, and uh, experiences uh, just a, a kind of a, sort of a tremendously uh, harsh reaction. And uh, this actually spreads worldwide. It gets reported on in the United States, um, written about in the mainstream media. And so now um, what uh, she is forever known as the dog poop girl. 
Uh, and this is something, it used to be the case where, you know, certainly uh, someone who does a rude act should be shamed. Um, I think that, you know, and typically what would happen is that people would um, give you an angry glance or say that what you did was rude. But now what we're doing is attributing to people what I call digital scarlet letters, that forever this woman is going to be known as the dog poop girl for her entire life, all across the Internet with millions and millions of, of, of sites and links and so on. Right. And, you know, it's like when you were talking about, you know, in the olden days, like the, the real scarlet letter, you know, someone can move away and start a whole new life. Or maybe they can even be rehabilitated in the community. They go to their church or their synagogue or something, and they, they change, and people finally accept them as who they are and that they've changed people. Uh, but it looks like with this kind of reputation that, that arises, it can, like you said, it can never go away, and you're stigmatized forever instead of having an opportunity to really rehabilitate yourself. Exactly, and I think that what it used to be the case that when people lived in the small communities, um, everyone knew everything about each other. And that came with some uh, privacy issues, but it also came with some benefits in that it was true that everyone knew everything else about each other, but you also knew the whole context of a person's life. When you judged someone, you knew everything about them, and uh, you could make a, a relatively a judgment based on a kind of full context on a person's life. But today, we really don't uh, have that kind of knowledge about a lot of people. People are largely strangers to us. And so then when we find a bit or a piece of information, and that's the only thing we really know, um, our judgments tend to be more harsh. We tend to be uh, less forgiving because we really don't um, have a basis to, have, to know the good things about a person. Um, so with the dog poop girl, I mean, we don't know anything good about her or any of the good deeds she did. We know one thing, and that was that she was really rude and inconsiderate. Uh, so I do think there's a difference uh, in today's modern society when we have uh, information circulating about people. And, and exactly. And maybe if it was in a small community, she could say, hey, I'm sorry, it was stupid, I was wrong, I learned my lesson. But you just can't do that on the Internet because you're never going to really be forgiven very easily, <laughs> especially after it proliferates and people start adding more harsh criticism and nastiness. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very hard um, to kind of clean up or, or get rid of uh, 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 rumors online. And some people will say, well, well, you can just post you know, good information about yourself online. But there's no guarantee that the good information is going to be as popular as the bad information. And the more popular information is uh, on the Internet, the more likely people are to find it. Uh, search engines like Google don't rank things based on how true they are. They rank them based on how popular uh, they are. Right, right. So in, in this whole notion of privacy, how, how do we view or how do we define privacy now in this information age with the Google? And I mean, we talked about that with the digital person, but now we're getting to a, a different level altogether when we talk about privacy. How do you define it? Well, I think older understandings of privacy used to see it as um, about hiding secrets, 
that we would hide secrets from the world and that uh, if you really wanted something to be private, you lock it uh, in a closet. Um, but the minute uh, it gets out, the minute the skeleton gets exposed to another person, then you assume the risk that they could be betray you or uh, if something is exposed at all to the public or you're out in public uh, and someone sees you, uh, that's it. It's entirely uh, in, entirely public. And I call this this old understanding of privacy, the binary notion of privacy. It tries to say things are either 100% private or 100% public. And, and the difficulty with this conception is that it doesn't really work well for uh, our modern world given modern technology. Uh, a few examples. One is suppose I'm, uh, or suppose a person is out in the uh, drugstore and buying a bunch of uh, items and drugs and hygiene products and so on, um, you're out in public. Uh, but now suppose someone comes along with a high-resolution digital camera, snaps a photograph of your uh, uh, shopping cart and uh, inventories all the items that you've bought and posts it up there with a picture of you, your name, your address, and here are all the items that uh, you're buying. Well, that pushes beyond your expectation. It's true that you are in public, but you're not expecting, you don't want um, the contents of everything that you buy to be uh, displayed to the world. And so we do actually have expectations of privacy in public, or at least expectations that certain kinds of disclosures and certain kinds of scrutiny won't befall us. We expect that people will uh, not be uh, scrutinizing our every move. Another example is that in American law, um, it's, it's generally the case that uh, if you tell a friend a secret or you tell a spouse um, a secret or a boyfriend or a girlfriend a secret and they decide to blab it to the world on the blog, uh, that is generally understood that you have assumed the risk that you could be betrayed, and it's your tough luck. Oh, I know. I, re I remember when you had in the book about Dr. Laura. Why don't you tell that story for people who don't know, although I remember <laughs> when that happened, you know, especially because I get a little bit upset with her being holier than thou, that it, there was some level of of satisfaction that some of that her pictures were out there to, to discredit that. But uh, tell the story of how she had uh, an expectation of privacy that really was not viewed as, as private. Certainly. Well, well Dr. Laura, um, for those who don't uh, know of her, um, is a uh, conservative uh, uh, talk show host, um, uh, radio, and she uh, preaches family values and uh, is a very staunch uh, uh, preacher of, of, of morality. And no well, sex before marriage, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what, what happened was um, uh, one of her uh, uh, ex-lovers from about 20 years in the past uh, posted, uh, sold nude pictures of her, um, including some of her spread eagle and some very uh, provocative uh, uh, poses, to a uh, video voyeur website. And the website took the pictures and posted them on the website. 
Uh, well, obviously, she was not happy about this. She was very upset, and she sued to try to get the website to take down the photographs. And uh, the court held that she lose, lost, uh, had no uh, ability to take the photos down um, because uh, of First Amendment uh, grounds. Now, what's interesting in this story was that the website, um, uh, when it posted the pictures, a number of other uh, a video uh, voyeur and porn website said, we want these pictures too. So they snatched the pictures from uh, the, the, the site and copied them and posted, started posting them on their sites. Well, the original site that bought the pictures sued the sites that, that took the pictures, saying right. that you have no right to post our pictures. Right, it was a copyright infringement. Exactly. <laughs> and they win. They won. And the head of the video voyeur company even said, you know, if Dr. Laura herself wanted to post these pictures on her site, we'd sue her. <laughs> right. And it illustrates, I use this case to illustrate the kind of stark contrast in the way the law protects privacy in this country. The law gives very strong protections to copyright and very weak protections to privacy. And the way pictures work is that the person who takes the picture has copyright protection in the picture, not the person for whom the picture is taken. The person who's the subject of the photo, they get privacy protection. And if you have a choice between privacy protection and copyright protection, choose copyright, because copyright gives you a ton of protections and privacy um, gives you a much more weak set of protections. And one thing I argue in the book is that we really should rethink this a bit. I actually think that the law of copyright provides too much protections in, in a number of cases, uh, and I think the law of privacy protects too little. Uh, but arguments that uh, the law really can't protect privacy uh, strike me as... Uh, a bit flawed in that if we look over to the law of copyright, we see that the law kind of does provide really strong protections. It's just a question of what we want the law to protect and what our values are. And I think our values should be much more um, on the side of privacy. Exactly. So I guess if somebody takes my picture, I must tell them that I own, that they can only take that picture if I own the copyright <laughs> at this point in time in the law, correct? So that I own the copyright. Yeah, well, the, the difficulty, the <laughs> difficult thing there with, with pictures is we, we don't want to stop people from uh, taking pictures, uh, and the minute you capture someone in a scene, all of a sudden you can't use your pictures or right. they've violated their privacy. Right. Um, on the other hand, I do think that there should be some uh, greater protection when someone's pictures about things that they're doing that um, are private um, are not uh, put up on the Internet which is becoming easier and easier now that uh, everyone's walking around with cameras. Uh, and you, you, gave cameras. A great, you gave a great example of the Burning Man Festival. Why don't you talk about that? Because that was, uh, I thought, a very good point about being out in public yet still having a privacy right. Exactly. Well, the Burning Man is a festival that's uh, held in uh, the desert every year. Um, where um, uh, a group of professionals and techies and artists um, all go out and, and have a, uh, uh, a, a celebration of sorts. Um, and the desert's an isolated place, but a lot of people attend 
the festival. Every year it's grown, and I think the last time it was something like 30 or 40,000 people who were there. Now, the festival has a lot of nudity in it, uh, and the general rules are that uh, people can take photographs and uh, take video of the festival, but they can't use it for commercial um, purposes, and it's not to be used for um, uh, you know, voyeur or porn sites. Well, a, a video voyeur company um, wanted to make a, a, a porn uh, video or a voyeur video of the Burning Man Festival and applied for a license to do this, and the festival organizer said no, but they went ahead and did it anyway. And uh, ultimately, uh, the festival sued them and, and won uh, in this case. They actually did win. They they wound up uh, uh, settling the case at the end and agreeing not to, to, to run the, the photos. That was primarily because of the license that um, got, got denied. Um, but it does illustrate that even in a setting where there are tens of thousands of people, there are still expectations of privacy. Now, under the old definition, we'd say, oh, well, it's not secret. After all, you're out there and there's 40,000 other people, some of whom might be recording uh, you and taking your picture. But I do think there's a difference, and that is how the information is used is what matters. Most people are perfectly fine with people taking pictures for their personal use or even taking pictures and putting them up on their website. But what they're not fine with is being used and exploited in a context of a porn site um, or a voyeur site. Uh, so I think that, and there is a difference there in how that information is being used. And I think it's perfectly rational for people to say, hey, I'm, I'm perfectly fine if you use my picture this way, but I don't want you to use it that way. Well, doesn't and that's that get what to the privacy was about for them. Yeah, I was just going to say, doesn't that get to the real privacy principles of when you collect information or a photo or whatever from someone for one particular purpose, then you shouldn't be able to use it for another purpose without getting that permission again. I mean, it just seems this is just part of our whole privacy principles is don't use information that you've, you've collected for one purpose for another purpose if there's no uh, consent. But it's, it, we just don't have that in the law right now. Yeah, well, the law is very bad at protecting that principle, which is a principle of purpose specification, which means that you know, if you collect the information for one reason, you can't go ahead and start using it for any uh, uh, thing that you want. Uh, and in, in this case, it, it sort of goes to, I mean, the, the video voyeur company wanted to you know, make these recordings for the purpose of, of using them in, in the site, but that just because information happens to be exposed to others or is used in certain ways does not mean that um, you know, it has to be binary and all or nothing. You know, people were fine with having this information exposed to others and used by others, but there were just certain kinds of uses that they were appalled by, and that was one of them, uh, the use in a voyeur website, um, you know, exploiting them for uh, pornographic purposes. And I think that people should have the ability to say, yeah, I, I want to allow people to use it um, for artistic reasons, but not for these other reasons. Doesn't that get to the whole issue of privacy in the information age, meaning that we can actually have some control 
over our personal information that that there is that control. I know when you talked about the Facebook fiasco that happened in 2006, why don't you talk about that? Because there's a lot of people on Facebook that reveal a lot of sensitive information about themselves. But uh, tell that story. Well, Facebook decided that it was going to come out with a new feature called News Feeds. News Feeds was uh, a thing that, that would uh, announce to everybody's friends all of the changes that someone made to their profile. Uh, and normally, if you made changes to your profile, you'd make them. And unless someone was really watching um, and paying attention to what you were doing, they wouldn't really notice every little minor change. Well, news feeds basically um, announced these these changes. What resulted, and, 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 well, first of all, Facebook thought, oh, what's the privacy harm, right? People's profiles are public. Their friends already see their profile anyway. Therefore, you know, these are probably the least, uh, you know... Privacy-conscious people. people. Yeah, yeah, exactly, the least privacy-conscious people that you could have. But they were surprised. What they had was a massive protest where hundreds of thousands of people started complaining about this, uh, calling it uh, akin to Big Brother. Uh, and Facebook ultimately wound up uh, making a change in this uh, and, uh, uh, you know, were really taken by surprise. And, but I think that what this demonstrates is that people had a different understanding of privacy. Um, as before, it wasn't the old uh, understanding that once something's exposed to the public, it's therefore not private. But it was that they understood privacy in terms of accessibility, that what privacy was, was wasn't just the um, exposing uh, you know, you know, information to the public and therefore it was suddenly 100% public. What they realized is that a lot of the small changes they made to their site were relatively inaccessible in that unless someone spent the time to scrutinize the site and compare it with older versions, they weren't going to pick up on a lot of these changes. So you'd make the changes, and by and large, they'd be kind of like a needle in a haystack. They'd be obscure. And once you take away that obscurity and start announcing these things, um, you change uh, the, uh, change the whole ballgame to some extent. And things that you expected to not be noticed suddenly are noticed by everybody. I think and you gave an example. Yeah, you gave an example um, of how somebody who maybe took a friend off their list, they wouldn't want everybody to know about it. And it would just kind of be more discreet if they did it. But the fact that this news feed was, you know, publicizing to everyone every little change that they made in their profile was pretty abhor- abhorrent for them. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's amazing. We're speaking with Professor Dan Solov, who's an associate professor of law at George Washington University School of Law. He's the author of this wonderful book that we're talking about, very provocative, The Future of Reputation. It's called, um, I'm sorry, I got it sitting right here, The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet. He's also written other books, The Digital Person, Technology and Privacy in the Information Age, and Information Privacy Law, and he has a new book that will be coming out soon, Understanding Privacy. Um, Dan, let's let's talk some more about what I have to tell you what I really loved about this book. Even though you're a law professor and even though me as an attorney, um, I was interested in the privacy law, you made this so user-friendly 
So it doesn't matter about if you know anything about the law. You explained it in such a user-friendly way. It made it very, very readable for anyone who would be interested in these outrageous things that are actually happening in our society right now. So I just want to, uh, you know, compliment you for that because I remember back in law school, I don't think my professors could really make it uh, as easily understandable as you do. So that's what's great. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. It was certainly my goal to, I really thought that these issues affected uh, obviously not just law professors, but everybody. And I, I really wanted to write a book that regardless of your knowledge of law, regardless of uh, your knowledge of blogging or social network websites, that you'd be able to understand what's going on and have the basic you know, tools in the book to uh, talk about it and, and discuss it. And I think that uh, I tried to use a lot of uh, stories yes. to basically get people thinking about these issues, because that's really what the book is about. It's you know, primarily a, a book to kind of uh, spark debate and get people thinking about um, you know the future that that's uh, developing before our eyes. You know, I have to go back when you were talking about the history and and um, how people used to resolve um, affronts to their reputation with dueling. You know, first it was brawling, and then it was dueling, and dueling was considered an honorable thing, even though it was illegal. Talk a little bit about that, and I thought that was fascinating. Well, I think that protecting reputation is something that is incredibly important, and unless the law is going to do it, there has to be some outlet for people. People are going to want to find an outlet to protect their reputation, because reputation is so important for um, people's lives and livelihood. Without a good reputation, you might not be able to get a job or might not be able to get a loan. Uh, You might be shunned by the community. So it's something that's very, very important. And people will uh, protect, uh, you know, as one of the most valuable things that they have. Um, Well, you did have this uh, culture of dueling that existed uh, for centuries. Uh, and it primarily occurred uh, with uh, uh, wealthy elites who would uh, fight duels to protect their reputation. Uh, and uh, these duels had a fairly developed a fairly elaborate set of rules um, that and customs that would apply for the dueling. And it was used to be popular in America. In fact, uh, Alexander Hamilton died uh, during a duel with uh, Aaron Burr. It was actually a duel Hamilton didn't even want to fight. Uh, he really didn't like dueling, but felt that he had to agree uh, to the duel or else uh, he would be ineffectual as a uh, policy leader because uh, people would uh, think he would be cowardly if he didn't um, agree to this duel. And so he agreed to the duel and, and ultimately perished in the duel. Um, and one of the things that um, uh, the law tried to do was to try to stop the practice of dueling, but it was very difficult for a long time for the law to succeed in in stopping dueling. Uh, People uh, continued to duel even though um, they realized they could be criminally prosecuted for dueling or for injuring or killing someone during a duel. And that's because, again, they thought their reputation was more important uh, than that. Ultimately, the law um, changed and dueling has, has died away. Uh, and when people want to rectify their reputation, uh, they will use privacy law and defamation law. 
One of the things I talked about in the book, though, is that um, with the uh, increase in blogs and social network websites and the gossip and rumor that's flowing about them, it's becoming harder for people to use that law to protect their privacy. And so the law, which had sort of uh, achieved an ascendancy, is now um, in a bit of turmoil and I think needs to be strengthened. Yes, because if someone destroys your reputation online and they don't have any money, what do you, you know, it costs so much to sue somebody. You know, what is your remedy, really? That's well, there's not much. The yeah. difficult thing is that for a lot of cases, yes, if a teenage blogger blogs about you and most likely they're not likely to have deep pockets and be able to pay much of a judgment, suing them is, is going to be a very uh, expensive proposition. It's going to take a long time. It's going to further... Um, publicize the thing that you don't want publicized, and ultimately you're not going to get a lot of money in return. Um, All that said, though, I do think that the role of the law um, is not um, primarily in the money damages that you're going to get. The role of the law should really be to create incentives for people to be responsible when they uh, write uh, things online. That's what the law should do. Except if, except if, and, and you did talk about this in your book, and except if the damages are already so great. You know, I'm thinking about people who um, I have helped, who've, I, I, whose identity has been stolen and their reputation has been ru- ruined online. It has been proliferated by governmental agencies that just didn't give a darn, even when he told them what happened to him. And literally, he one of the people I'm thinking about right now was, you know, his damages were horrendous, destroyed his reputation, destroyed his career. Then we're talking about um, real damages. When you have instances like that, I do think that, you know, the law is, is, is a tool that people can use to sue. When it comes to a business that has destroyed someone's reputation, or uh, the government, I think that, uh, you know, lawsuits are a great tool. Um, and they have money to pay. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, that's, it's definitely something that people should resort to and use to protect themselves when their reputation is, is trashed by uh, the government and by uh, businesses. The difficulty comes in when you have um, bloggers and people using social network websites. Uh, a lot of them um, uh, you know, don't have that much money uh, at all. You have some 15-year-old kid who's blogging about a friend or an enemy mm-hmm. and saying gossip and rumor. Right. Um, suing that person is not like suing a big credit reporting agency or a, a government agency, uh, and so they're not going to be able to, to pay. Right. Uh, that doesn't mean that the law can't help or function in that case. It just means that um, at the end of the day, you're not going to, if, if the primary purpose of the lawsuit is to, to have uh, monetary redress for, you know, your injuries, um, you're not likely to get it for, from, you know, the 15-year-old blogger. Right, right. And what you talked about, what was even more important, is, is taking the negative, erroneous, or whatever it is, kind of information about the person that is destroying them, to taking it down, and that's a problem when a company doesn't want to do that. That gets to the issue of uh, of privacy balancing with with uh, free speech, doesn't it? Yes, and that's one of the difficulties that um, uh, I encountered in writing the book and in addressing this problem 
is that it's not the case where you have uh, good versus evil or an instance where there's something that's uh, clearly a value that we uh, want and uh, we have to protect that. In fact, it's uh, a clash between two things that are immensely valuable, privacy uh, and the protection of reputation on the one hand and free speech on the other. And we want both of these things, and both are very important values. And so if we protect privacy too much, um, we start to chill uh, speech, and we don't want to do that. If we protect speech too much, then we provide people with no protection of privacy or their reputation. And so a really delicate balance has to be established between the two. And that's something that I'm trying to establish in, in the book. Uh, and one of the difficulties is you know the when the more you have the law get involved the more the law starts making people liable the more likely it is that people start to be chilled or feel that they can't say what they want to say and so we want what i try to do in the book is recommend a course where the law can be stronger yet at the same time not try to make people reticent in the kinds of things that they might want to say yeah you know you talked about some of these websites where um you know, women could complain about men and put up all this information. We actually had um, a woman on our show who wrote a book, and she has a website where women come and complain about the uh, the, the liars and the cheaters <laughs> on our website. And, and I asked her the question. I said, well, what about the fact that um, some of this stuff may not be true? And she said, well, they can write to us and, and talk to us about it, but Really and truly, we don't have any duty to take anything down. <laughs> but I think you talked about that in the book, that when someone um, does have a, a, a problem with a website, you know, how do they get them to take it down? I mean, that's, that's the issue is are they going – you talk about them being uh, – that they should take it down, but there's no requirement for them to take it down, right? That's right. Well, the, the law has a – if – if you're the one who said it, then you could be sued, and and you would then you could be uh, forced to take it down. Or if you don't take it down, you could be sued. If, on the other hand, you're not the one that said it, but someone else said it on your site, so there are a lot of sites that that are uh, cropping up where um, the site, the people who make the site, they're not posting anything. Right. They're asking other people to post other gossip they know about other people. And whenever someone else posts on your site, as long as you're not the one posting, you're not uh, liable for the things that other people are going to say. And that is because of a law called uh, Section 230 of a law called the Communications Decency Act. It was passed back in 1996. Uh, and this immunizes people for comments made by other people. Now, courts have read this very, very broadly because... There was a thing in the law before Section 230 that would make you liable for comments of the others if someone told you what you've, what's been written is an invasion of privacy or it's defamatory. And it looks like you know, to a reasonable person it would, in fact, be uh, defamatory or an invasion of privacy. Then if you didn't take it down, you could be liable. Um, so once you were on notice that this was a problem, then liability would kick in. But this law has been read by courts to, in fact, uh, uh, wipe that out as well. 
which basically means that someone posts a defamatory comment about you on my blog, and you beg me and plead with me to take it down, I can say, you know, take a hike. Right. And there's nothing you can really do about that. Now, I think that's way too extreme. I think the law is overprotecting speech in these instances. And I think we really do need to um, reestablish a better balance um, so that, uh, that that's not the case. But it is true that if, if, you, if your information, if you do find your information up there online, there are some sites that will voluntarily take it down just because they'd rather not um, get into a tussle with you, um, even though they'll probably prevail under Section 230 if you ever sued them. Um, other sites uh, really uh, uh, take their immunity very uh, uh, staunchly and say, no, we're not going to take anything down. Whether you like it or not, we don't care because we're immune. And even if someone does take it down, if it's been up for a long time and the victim doesn't know about it, it could be copied or archived or, or whatever. I mean, how do you ever even know where this stuff is? Well, one thing you should do is what's known as a vanity search. It's a search in Google under your name. Um, it's something that I think people should do uh, with uh, greater regularity. And I think people should search under their name. They should search under their kids' names. They should see what is actually out there about them. And uh, once they discover it, um, it's much, much easier to nip something in the bud when it's only on one or two sites than when something really goes viral on the Internet. And what I mean by going viral is that sometimes something becomes incredibly popular on the Internet and everyone starts linking to it and writing about it and it starts getting on hundreds uh, and, and sometimes thousands, sometimes even millions of, of sites. Uh, and, and I've seen this happen before when information has gone viral on the Internet. And it, it's truly an amazing exponential kind of... Uh, spread of information. Uh, it, it's astounding how, how fast uh, something can, can go online. Um, certain videos, for instance, someone posts a video on YouTube, sometimes these videos can be watched millions of times in a very short amount of time because everyone starts talking about it and linking to it. And uh, the more people that link to it, the more people that read them, and they start linking to it. And it just really starts growing and growing. The opinions and uh, views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, like or the, the UC uh, Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows so broadcasting on KUCI, really log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Uh, if it were just on one or two websites and she discovered it, then she might be able to get it taken down before it... The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. horrible example of Was he a Yale law student who... Now, a Yale student who wanted to become an investment broker and did a video about himself <laughs> was kind of egotistical and sent it to um, this investment broker to apply for a job. And then what happened is somebody within that prestigious company put it on YouTube and it totally destroyed him. Yeah. I mean, the video was not a particularly flattering video. It was a very odd thing to do for an investment banking job. Right, um, right. Where he basically films himself doing all sorts of physical feats. <laughs> right. Um, like bench pressing and doing, uh, you know, breaking bricks with a karate chop and doing, uh, 
you know, and uh, dancing, dancing <laughs> and other yeah. things. Yeah. Um, and all the while talking in a fairly pompous way about um, how he's figured out the secret to success. Right. Uh, right. And obviously, this is you know certainly uh, you know so silly that uh, he was mocked around the the. Yeah, the company, all yeah, all over. Not yeah. just the company, but it got out on YouTube and elsewhere. Right, so everyone's uh, you know mocking him, and it's hard now. If you do a search for his name, you're going to pull up all sorts of uh, things attacking him. And you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I do think what the video was incredibly arrogant. I do think it was a very kind of funny video in that it it doesn't really demonstrate his ability to be an investment banker. It demonstrates right. that he's very, very pompous and, and probably someone you don't want to hire. On the other hand, I mean, he, he is just a, a, he was just a college kid. And right. sometimes people, people change. And, and they do stupid things, right, and then they learn from it. But, yeah, but... Yeah. Maybe but he'll learn a lesson in the future that it's not good to be pompous and he will um, uh, not be that way in the future. But at this point, forever, he's going to be memorialized in that way. And this was a video he did not post himself online. He sent right. it to a company um, as part of his resume, and uh, someone at the, wherever he sent it, uh, posted it online. Right, and that was like, you know, he gave it for one purpose, but if, obviously they went and sent it out publicly, so he expected that it would just be seen by that organization. And so that, that again, went beyond what he expected. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, there's some kind of, I mean, my heart went out to him, even though he was a pompous little creep <laughs> to do that. It still was, I thought, way beyond what should have happened. So let's talk a little bit about blogging. I know you have a blog. Are you, you know, I, I, I looked at your blog and it looks great and interesting stuff. Um, but what about blogging? Who's blogging? I'm, I don't have a blog. So I just, you know, I found it really interesting, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this do have blogs. Tell us about blogs. Who's blogging, and what are they doing? Well, I think this is one of the really interesting time in history, because um, for most of human history, um, people didn't have the ability to spread information around the world um, or spread it really widely. And then we saw the development of, of the the mass media, which actually gave people the ability to broadcast things uh, to millions of people uh, at a time. But they were, they've always been in the hands of elites, and uh, the average person isn't going to be able to get uh, to say anything they want on national television whenever they want. But blogs now allow... Um, people, uh, anybody um, with an internet connection, to reach a potentially a worldwide audience. They can say anything and get it out there. They're becoming a broadcaster, a publisher um, to the world. Uh, and I think this is, uh, on the one hand, really amazing. I, I love blogging. I think it's great. I think uh, uh, a lot of the uh, people who are blogging would ordinarily not get heard by uh, the media and uh, now they can be heard. And I think that's, that's a wonderful development. Um, and the things that are written on blogs can be incredibly insightful, interesting, um, and you have a lot of uh, expert commentary on uh, various things where ordinarily if you hear a story, you get the, uh, the person gets a sound bite um, or like a sentence. But now actually you have experts who are really opining about 
um, the various uh, news events, and it's great because you're getting analysis that um, is first-rate and, and uh, incredibly intelligent and insightful. Uh, so I think the things you can get on blogs are wonderful, and blogs have really taken off uh, in the past uh, four or five years. We've gone from hardly any blogs to uh, millions, tens of millions of blogs. But then there's the dark side, too, that you talk about. And I'll tell you, just today, I uh, I was looking for something on the Internet on the Orange County, you know, some of the new rules for the Orange County Superior Court. And when I put in Orange County Superior Court and I went to Google, a blog came up. And this blog was, get revenge against these judges. You know, if you've been destroyed by these judges and, you know, join the blogs uh, to get your revenge. (laughs) And I started reading these things that were almost inciting people to go and kill these judges, you know, for paternity and, and, you know, child support and spouses support, all these horrible things. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, there's there's this, you know, incredible excitement about these wonderful things that can happen on blogs. But there's the dark side as well. Exactly. Well, I think that's the thing. I mean, anyone, you know, a lot of blogs are, you know, people talking about politics and news. and But there's a lot of blogs where people are talking about gossip and their private lives and the private lives of uh, people they know. Um, blogs are written by people of all kinds of uh, views, from people who think that blogging should be about writing about serious, uh, newsworthy topics to people who think that blogging should be um, spreading nasty rumors about their enemies. There was even a blog that I found when, you know, I had uh, recently interviewed Kevin Mitnick, and I was looking at something, and I ended up on this blog on how to make all of these um, these hacking blog <laughs> on how to hack into things and how to do all this social engineering and and how to break into houses and to take over uh, phone lines. I mean, it was it was amazing to me. And I guess I've just been looking for for things and ended up on, on nasty blogs when I should be looking at the good lot blogs. But um, what do we do about those? Do we do anything? It just let it be. Well, the difficulty is that you know, first of all, you know, unless a blog is harming anyone, I think people have a right to speak and. Uh, to say what they want to say, even if what they say is dumb or offensive or or or, or uh, obnoxious. But that said, I think that people don't have a right to hurt other people. And so, when the things that they say are harming other people by defaming them or invading their privacy, I think that's where the law should should be involved and should try to uh, stop that and teach people that you know say what you want to say, but you still have to be responsible and not harm other people in the process. So what what kind of laws do we need? Well, we already have, uh, I think, uh, a foundation in the law to protect us. We have a series of torts that protect privacy, um, and they range from a, a tort called public disclosure of private facts, which protects against the um, disclosing private facts about a person's life that's not newsworthy and that's highly offensive. We have torts to uh, protect against the use of your name and image um, in ways that are um, uh, outside your consent. We have laws to protect against the breach of your confidentiality. Um, the problem is, is not with the fact that we lack the tools, the legal tools. It's that the legal tools 
need a lot of tweaking, that courts have uh, imposed these antiquated understandings of privacy into the law, which have really held them back and made the law not very effective in these situations. And if we really rethought privacy and, and had a broader understanding of, of, of privacy, these torts could be reinvigorated in a way that could actually start helping to protect us. You know, you gave an example about uh, Justice Brandeis when he had written the his law review article on privacy and the right to be left alone, and he was worried about the, the photographers at that time because that new technology had just arisen. Why don't you talk about that and how that actually changed the law of privacy? Well, this was back in 1890, and we were in an age where um, the, the camera is just... Uh, uh, it's a relatively new thing. I mean, cameras have been around for a while, but they were very expensive, very big and clunky, and you couldn't really take pictures of people unless they agreed to pose because you had to uh, sit for a while to get your picture taken. Uh, so um, basically only real professional photographers would have access to the, the photographs. Um, you also This is also a time, too, where um, the press is very sensationalistic. It's really starting to grow um, this is the big growth in, in the newspaper, and the growth is being spurred by newspapers starting to hunt around for all kinds of juicy, gossipy stories to report on. Um, what happened was there was a new invention um, a few years before uh, Warren and Brandeis wrote their article called the Snap Camera. And this is a camera that, uh, for the first time, was small and it was cheap, and people could uh, have it and start taking candid photographs of others. And so Warren and Brandeis were very concerned that if you take this camera and you uh, and, and the cameras are getting cheaper and candid photographs can be taken and you stick it in the hands of uh, an increasingly sensationalistic media, that's a recipe for uh, some serious threats to privacy. So uh, they did thought that we needed to address this problem um, and they looked at the law to say, um, is there a way that the law can help protect us? And at the time they wrote, back in 1890, there were only a few um, uh, shards of legal protections when it came to privacy. There, were, there was something, um, but uh, not a lot. And what they did was um, they tried to show how um, new protections of privacy could arise, uh, how they could grow out of the common law and help uh, protect people. And by and large, a lot of times um, uh, throughout the next century, throughout the 20th century, courts were very influenced by their article. And they started recognizing torts, as Warren and Brandeis had recommended. And today, actually, most states recognize the torts that Warren and Brandeis recommended. Uh, and so by writing this article, they actually helped shape the law in almost all the states in the U.S. And there's several countries um, that have also recognized uh, uh, torts to protect privacy as well. Uh, so they did have a, a, a very uh, big impact uh, in this, in, in the kinds of things that they recommended. Uh, and what I suggest is that, you know, it, one, uh, there was another commentator who wrote on basically the same problem, and he wrote that basically there was very little that could be done, and we should throw our hands up and say, um, that's just life. And uh, Warren and Brandeis' take was, no, we should really work to try to find a solution to this, and there are ways we can, we can help uh, improve the situation. And so I side with Warren and Brandeis in that I think that that's the attitude we need to take.
um, there are ways that we can make some headway um, in this, uh, and we shouldn't just give up. Right. Well, Lloyd is telling me we have about three minutes. I just, you know, some of the things that you had in your book toward the end, you talked about some of the things that need to happen as our own social norms develop as to, you know, what are what are the proper things that it's it's not just the law. The, the law may springboard from the social norms that we develop ourselves as bloggers and and the architecture. Talk, if you could just give a couple minutes about what you think should happen in terms of not just the law, but what the architecture should be maybe with some of these websites, because Lloyd's saying we don't have that much time. Okay. Well, um, basically, I think the law alone can't solve our problems. Um, What really needs to happen is that we need a change in norms, that people have to realize that when they blog or they use social network websites, they need to understand this is something that has consequences, this is something they need to do responsibly, it's something that parents need to teach their kids about. A lot of parents are clueless about uh, what their kids are doing on these sites, but um, they'll be concerned about how their kid might be driving but not concerned about what the things that the kid might be doing online. But these things that, that, that are happening online could really affect someone for their life and could affect other people. They could be harming other people. And so being aware of that and uh, 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 thinking about that and teaching people to be responsible and, and helping people understand the consequences of this, I think could help go a long way to shaping norms to make people think that um, when they start writing um, you know, these, this really does have effects. It um, seems to me, Dan, that most of the parents are even clueless. Most of our kids know more about blogging and doing all these things than than many of the parents. And so it almost seems like we should be teaching this stuff in the schools because a lot of the parents are clueless as to a lot of the ramifications themselves. Absolutely. I do think this is something that uh, people need greater awareness of, because I don't think that you know, they're, they're thinking about the, the full consequences on this. So some, one of the impetuses for me to write this book was to tell people, here are some of the cautionary tales, here's, what's gonna ha- here's some of the kinds of things that are happening or that could happen. Um, and I think if, uh, in sort of hope that if people read the book, they'll really start to they'll be aware of what's going on and, and uh, what the consequences could be. And so hopefully it'll be uh, sobering and uh, educational. Well, that's um, exactly right. We want people to read The Future of Reputation, Gossip, Rumor, and Privacy on the Internet. Dan Lloyd says that's all the time we have. I'm going to have to have you back for the new book for sure when that comes out and we will we're linking to your website so that people can find you and of course they can find your book and learn more about this and we thank you for the wonderful writing that you've been doing and all the great work that you do in privacy we really appreciate you very much so thank you dan thanks so much for having me on okay we'll we'll talk to you soon you've been listening to daniel solov who is a a law professor at George Washington University School of Law, and he is the author of The Future of Reputation. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Visit our website to see our VIP guests and listen to interviews and download podcasts at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.